Welcome to an Anxious Poets podcast mini-series on the cusp of two realms. Synchronicity, the interleaving of our inner and outer worlds. Episode 4, A Sense of Place, A Sheffield Traipsing. Hello, I am the Anxious Poet, I'm Adrian Scott, and this is the fourth and final episode of this mini-series on the cusp of two realms, synchronicity, the interleaving of our inner and outer worlds. And this final episode is about place. So to begin with, I'd like you to think of one place that has made a deep imprint on you. One place that has left its mark on you, that you remember, or that you live in now, that you may visit in your dreams. It could be where you grew up, it could be where you met someone significant, where you went on holiday, where you went on a pilgrimage, it doesn't matter. Just when I say that one place, what comes to mind for you? Because place for me is where that interleaving of our inner and outer worlds really happens. Places are so evocative. They create a deep sense of synchronicity at times. And for me, the place that has had the most influence on me is Sheffield. It's where I grew up. It's not where I was born. It's my son constantly reminds me that I'm not a proper Sheffielder because I wasn't born here. But I did come here when I was one. And it's a place that I have returned to. I moved away to a place called Maltby, which is not far from Sheffield. It's in Rotherham. <clears throat> when I was in my early 20s. I went to London on and off to study. That's where I met my wife. And then once we'd had two children who were very small, we wanted somewhere to bring them up that felt nurturing and safe. And we came back to Sheffield. Or back to Sheffield for me, my wife's from Glasgow. So Sheffield's been the backdrop to my life for a long time and when I was writing The Call of the Unwritten I started to write a poem about Sheffield and here are some of the lines. It's called A Poem of Grudging Self-Acceptance and it came from I'd done something on Radio Sheffield and my mum wanted to hear it so I played back the recording of it to her and I heard my own voice and this is these are the opening lines. I hear my voice on a recording and cringe. The flat vowels, the lack of bass notes, the overall effect of a dim northerner appalls me. 
I know Hockney and Bennett have made the Yorkshire accent credible, but they hail from the more well-heeled parts like Leeds and Harrogate, the places where the BBC make look north, and from whence came the assured silk hats of Bradford millionaires. Here's a bit more. Being bred in South Yorkshire was like putting on an overcoat that I began to grow into. That's where I'd come to at that point when I was 50. I suddenly realised... I'd lived in this city on and off most of my life. And what did I make of it? I've come to love this town, with its sibilant Stannington and Shire Green, the earthy romance of Rivlin and Dungworth, as I declare her common beauty. The view of the world she has given me is not flat like my vowels, but riven by seven rivers through seven hills, with valleys that cut deep into the heart of things that taught us to make cutlery and silver. And at the end of the poem, I said, we should talk to each other at bus stops and in shops about what can be shined and sharpened today to tell each other new stories and in the telling, rescue the worn things we still need and colloquially create the new hallmarks that read Made in Sheffield. So I will listen to your voices, overhear your chatter and your stillness. I will speak about my city in my ready northern tongue and make a simple solid vow to tell your stories with the honesty I got from you. And this sort of synchronicity of writing this poem made me start to really look at where I'd grown up, where I lived, what resonances and redolent memories were affecting me. When I dream, I often dream of the house I grew up in, up in a place called Totley. Um, it was a big semi-detached house with a dentist next door, next door which was a bit scary. And um, and I, if I dream, often I dream of that house. It's a recurring backdrop to my dreams. And I started to want to really explore the streets and landscape of Sheffield. It felt like a synchronicity. And I'd, I'd had my breakdown by then. And I was starting to recover. And I, I'd realised that writing was such a powerful way of helping with my recovery. And I thought, well, maybe I could do it more formally and I, I'd met a guy called Brendan Stone who worked at Sheffield University and he did a lot of work in mental health and I thought he's a sort of safe pair of hands to talk to and he encouraged me to apply to do a PhD in creative writing about Sheffield based on that last part of that poem uh, about listening to people's voices overhearing people and speaking about my city and it felt it felt like a almost a, a, a calling somehow from the streets of Sheffield to really enter into the city and see what it had to say to me and I think that's what place does place and and so I started reading about place uh, reading poets of place, someone like Dylan Thomas, who was the poet of of Larne and, and South Wales, who 
I read some Sheffield poets like Helen Mort. Um, these people who, who somehow captured the genius loci of a place, the animating spirit, the soul of a place, and realised that somehow there was an alchemy between their environment where they lived <clears throat> and and their inner world and created these conversations between those two things so i started to think where what i wanted to do was walk because i realized that walking was such you know um solvitur ambulando it is solved by walking and this had been a great curative to me walking uh, around the valley where I live walking up into the peaks so I went up I, I, I thought where can I get the best view of Sheffield to look at it and then to walk down into it and I went up to a place above Ringinglow I mean Ringinglow just the name sounds fantastic it's um it's the sort of west of Sheffield um up into the peaks you go up past Ringinglow and you see the great big uh, millstone with uh, welcome to the Peak District written on it so I went right up to the top and I looked down into the city and it sits in a bowl Sheffield and it's it's folded valleys you can see it all uh, all laid out in front of you and I thought what a great place to start from and I'd been reading Dylan Thomas's prologue. I think he wrote it as a as a prologue to his collected works. I'm not sure. Um, and I, I loved it. The, this day winding down now at God's speeded summer's end in the torrent salmon sun in my sea-shaken house on a breakneck of rocks. There you go. There's the poetry of place. In my sea-shaken house on a breakneck of rocks. He lived in the boathouse right on the coastline. And and I thought, this is the way to start then. Is to write some kind of manifesto about what I want to do. A prologue. And Brendan had been talking to me about um, the Flaneur tradition uh, in Paris. These poets that would wander the city and sit in cafes and compose a verse like Baudelaire about the city. Sounds very romantic. And, um, and and there's really powerful poetry and powerful writing about this tradition. But I thought, I'm from Sheffield. I can't call myself a flaneur. What will I call myself? And, and I thought, well, a, a Sheffield word for wandering round aimlessly, but but with some kind of intention is traipsing so I developed a traipser's manifesto so this is called prologue to a traipsing I stand conduit with the flowing road that runs down from Stanage out of the mass trespass moors above Ringinglow I watch as the dark tar river issues into wet yet rapidly sunburnished Sheffield. I stand conduit to expectancy of a wandering, a gritty itinerancy, tramping the damp road, mirroring the flow of my near sixty years, the city filling my wind-glossed sight, ready to enter an unsteady future. 
I stand conduit at a confluence, the deep seams of ore and ire, my history and factory shutting Sheffield, and Maltby, striking pit, pounded, distant in time and view from here, moribund hinterland to Steele's grave. I stand conduit to uncertainty, boxed in by old streets, echoing, seeking a way to walk the city, to write the pages of present days, pad blank with unknowing, a loosener for tongues tied up by being ignored. I stand conduit to make a start, more than a maudlin requiem or a sad and mawkish oration, well packed with an earshine of listening, walking on to meet the newly arrived and the left behind. I stand conduit to a troubled hope, in search of the sliders who slip between marrow and bone, those whose viscous honesty and anarchic incursions rupture all that tight-limbed electoral thinking. I stand conduit to these first steps, to tread the valley-riven streets with fresh boots, the peaks rain wetting my resolve, to walk a poetry of traipsing, to write a flow of treading, to transcribe tough the unalloyed lines of a retold city. So I started from there to walk the city. I did 12 walks and I spent, oh, I've spent a few years now in that state where I've got an earshine of listening with a pad blank to, to encounter and to see and to experience and it's been an amazing privilege and a healing thing to really get in touch with the place I live in and understand how it shaped me, how the things that have shaped it, the things that, it, that the city has experienced have also shaped my experiences. And... One of the synchronicities of place that I experienced was remembering things that had happened. And at one point I walked uh, through Brinsworth, which is in the east part of the city, near a, a, a dual carriageway called the Parkway, that I actually walked underneath. And um, I remembered this experience I did spiritual direction with the vicar of Brinsworth and he'd heard that I was involved with men's work um, and he asked me all about it, men's rites of passage. I helped organise these gatherings of men trying to use the traditional elements of the rites of passage that traditional cultures would engage in with young men to help them become mature men. Uh, we took some of those themes. It was founded, the work I did, by a priest called Richard Raw from New Mexico. So he asked me, he said, would you come and talk to my men's group um, about your experience with this and, and how it might help them? And I said, yeah, of course I would. Yeah, I was very happy to do that. Um, and thought nothing more of it. We arranged a time, it was a Thursday night, I think, and I was expecting that it would be a few blokes in his front room in the vicarage and we'd, you know, we'd have a nice chat over a cup of tea. And little did I know until he rang me a couple of days before. He said, oh, it's all sorted. Uh, we're all booked up. 
There'll be a pie and pea supper and then you'll speak. It'll be in the Phoenix Social Club. In Brinsworth. I said, what? Sorry? Uh, what? He said, I said, how many people are we talking about? He said, oh, there's about 70. 70? I said, uh, whoa. Okay. And and what kind of blokes are we talking about? He said, well, predominantly ex-steel workers. Um, and I just was stunned. And, and and this is the poem that I wrote about that experience. It's called Speaking to Steelworkers about Rites of Passage. Come and talk to my men's group about male rites of passage. The vicar of Brinsworth asked me, come next Thursday night. I had read all the books, Arnold von Gennep, Joseph Campbell, Rites and Symbols of Initiation by the great Mercia Eliard. I expected four or five souls in the front room of the vicarage, tea, biscuits and an earnest conversation about manliness. Instead, I was ushered into the Phoenix Social Club to speak to 70 ex-steelworkers following a pie and pea supper. What the hell does a man who mainly writes poetry say about masculinity and rites of passage to men like these? I dredged my taken-off-guard soul for an entry point that wouldn't come off as bullshit, as egg-sucking for granite. What came up in the cage as the winding gear of my mind began to revolve was Ashington, a place that once boasted it was the biggest pit village in the world, a Geordie coalfield that birthed my dad along with Bobby and Jackie Charlton. I spoke of my father. He didn't want to go down the pit, so he conducted on the buses and then joined the Navy, shoveling the miners' coal into the engines of ships, fighting through a world war and rising through the ranks. He became a man by leaving home, by sailing to Salon, by being sunk by dive bombers, by surviving and fighting on. I became a man too soon because he died too young, and I told them about that, how I lost him before I was cast. I watched hard faces soften at the revelation of my losses. They nodded and pints were raised. They showed me the photographs on the walls of the huge crucibles of molten steel. We did that. We went through those factory doors and we worked those shifts. And we spent the rest of the night voicing what wrought us. Why my dad came to Sheffield and made rolling mills. Why I am here, in this city, forging words from steel. How their apprenticeship hallmarked their lives for good. Old men's faces growing younger in the furnace light ready to talk of strikes and shop stewards, pickets and the fight for dignity, of the redundancy of their labour, and this was how we spoke that night of rites of passage. So as I walked, this experience came up in my soul, if you like. And these walks just set me thinking about all the things that had happened to Sheffield, all the things that I remembered. I remembered driving... My dad taking us through Templeborough, which is between Sheffield and Rotherham, at night. And you could see all the electric art furnaces, and it was like a fireworks display. Um, I, I thought about my dad, because he came to Sheffield to help build John Lewis. He was an engineer. And then he worked for Firth Brown and Davy United steel firms. Um, how all this had shaped me without me knowing it. I got my first job in 1979 
at the beginning of the recession, the winter of discontent, I worked in a clothes shop. Um, I got £30 a week. And um, and life was really difficult. Uh, the dole was 29 quid. Um, and just, just thinking about all those things. And then I run a couple of writing groups and one of the ladies that comes, Janice, she, I was talking about how I was trying to write these poems about Sheffield, how I was trying to connect with the city that had birthed me, uh, that had had formed me. And she said, you want to talk to my John? He's proper Sheffield. She said, he's 40 years a steel worker, born and bred in Sheffield. And and he'll tell you real great stories. So I said, well, okay, I'll I'll come round. They lived in a place called Woodhead, uh, which is right on the other side of Sheffield. And, um, she said he doesn't get out much now because he's got emphysema because of the work in the steelworks and what it's done to his lungs. So I said I'd come round. I went round and, and she made us a cup of tea and then she left us to it. And he, he, he was on oxygen. He had a little oxygen cannula up his nose. And, and the way he got around was often on a little scooter, a mobility scooter. But we just sat and started to chat. And I said, you know, tell me. Tell me what it was like to work in the steelworks. And and he was amazing. He just told me incredible stories. And we talked for three hours. She came back and she said, are you still at it? And we were like, we haven't even started. Um, and a few weeks later, she came to the writing group. She said, you've got to come back and see John again. She said, you've no idea what that did for John. He was just couldn't believe someone was interested the way you were interested i said he's fascinating um what a history and she said you know it's all just been cast aside and i thought right it not not by me it's not going to be so i wrote this piece and sadly john got cancer not long after that uh and and became terminally ill and i, I saw him a lot when he was in hospital I think I saw him the day before he died. Um, And graciously, she asked me and Wilma to do his funeral. So I got to read this piece at his funeral. Um, and, And here's what I wrote. John Speddings, steel worker, 1947. To 2017. Ten thousand long days I have rang you, and o'er for an untimely old age. Joseph Senior, Smithy Rhymes and Stithy Chimes. The face he sets to the world falls short of the man he used to be, and yet the steel he worked is still visible, assayed and tensile in his stainless steel stare. The drop forge's dirty process has filled his lungs. By shifts, earlies, lates and nights, with the slack and slough, the searing breath of the furnace, We sit in his living room, his dark mahogany tea in our workman's mugs. As we look at his photograph of the black hole of Calcutta, 
that was Turton Platz's River Don works, looking like an old master in satanic oils. It were great, he tells me, when we were Sheffield owned, but we ended up bought and sold in the hands of Australians and then the Yanks. This man's fate sealed in Sydney or Pittsburgh. Four mates worked the forge, gauging with precision the moment when the great concussion would press out another cherry red buffer that would slowly harden into brazen steel and keep the trains apart. Some men died, three during his service. It's dangerous stuff, steelworking, he says, in the deadpan nonchalance of his ilk. But you should have seen us leaving work, covered in muck and muscled. I lost three stone when I were an apprentice. He has been a buffer too, between the life of steel forged, hammered into his frame, the constancy of dropping, casting his life to its contours, and his family, shielded from it all, sitting around his woodhouse table. The heat has withdrawn and the workshops have fallen silent. Just this listening, a taking in, an absorption of a face, a form, a man uncertain now in the city he built. The city centre, an alien world, not visited. What honours do his kind receive? When is his medal ceremony? The life he gave is unnoticed except by me in this drinking of tea and by his friends, by his family and it's not enough, not nearly enough. The eagle-eared among you will have noticed that that had a musical accompaniment. I began to perform these poems after I'd written them and my wife's band and me had been asked to do a, a gig about Sheffield at a local church. Um, so we were performing together and I read a couple of the poems and Andy, the guitarist, came up to me afterwards and said, I love these pieces. How would you feel about me trying to put some musical accompaniments to them? And, and I was flattered and, and said, yeah, I'd love you to do that. Um, and then COVID struck. So we would send uh, recordings backwards and forwards. I'd record the voice and then he'd put in a compliment and send it back. And, and that was one of them. And it just added a, a whole new dimension for me to the piece, um, to the power of it. And Andy is the same age as me, Sheffield born and bred, uh, grew up within the sound of the drop forges down at Turton Platts and places like that in the Don Valley. So just captured the the audible landscape of Sheffield 
Um, and we've produced a whole album, which anyone listening to this podcast will have probably heard about, called Made in Sheffield. And um, I just, I just felt so moved by John Speddings and by so many of the people that I met, who I wrote about. Especially that sense of being unnoticed, that somehow the mining and the steelworking that really built the country, uh, that we talk about in the my other podcast with um, Matt Carr, Grim Up North, you know, these people made, made the country. And then somehow towards the end, because of Mrs Thatcher, she referred to them as the enemy within. And... You know, John was a proud, loving, generous father, husband, just a good man. And and that anger at the end, when is his medal ceremony? When is he going to get recognised for what he did? Because it's that's even not that's not enough, not nearly enough. Um, and that's where that sort of emotional synchronicity happened for me thinking about feeling emotionally experiencing the city walking around the city seeing where the steelworks used to be meeting people who worked in those steelworks and hearing the wound of this city and hearing the uncertainty and the unsteadiness of where we're going as a city echoed in my own uncertainty and my own unsteadiness uh, it was a powerful experience. To pursue then this idea of place, I want to turn, as we have in all of these mini-series, to Mary Oliver. Very short poem about place. I go down to the shore. I go down to the shore in the morning, and depending on the hour, the waves are rolling in or moving out, and I say... Oh, I am miserable. What shall, what should I do? And the sea says in its lovely voice, Excuse me, I have work to do. I go down to the shore in the morning and depending on the hour, the waves are rolling in or moving out and I say, Oh, I am miserable. What shall, what should I do? And the sea says in its lovely voice, Excuse me, I have work to do. As I'm continuing this podcast, the rain has started to fall. I can hear it on the window outside. You might pick it up. And Mary Oliver has that amazing ability to interleave that those inner and outer worlds. So she's gone down to the shore with these miserable feelings. And the sea says in its lovely voice, excuse me, I don't have time to worry about your miserable feelings. I have work to do. And that's certainly my experience of going out into the cityscape or into the landscape. The world has work to do. It's, it's doing that work all around us. And when we become overly absorbed in our troubles or in our desperation, our misery or 
just become too hubristic, too caught up in the world revolving around us. The world as it is speaks to us and says, excuse me, I have work to do. And you have work to do. You have uh, a different kind of work than the dwelling on your misery or your anxiety or whatever the thing that is. There's a lovely hesitation in this poem. She says, and I say, oh, I am miserable. What shall, and there's a dash, what should I do? And, and there's a hesitancy. And, and that's how we feel. We're hesitant. What shall, what should I do? And the natural world speaks to us if we can go out into it with our hearts open. Because that work of the of the natural world echoes the, the inner work that we have to do. And that turns me to the desert tradition. Abba Pellman said, teach your mouth to speak what is in your heart. I really like that. Teach your mouth to speak what is in your heart. Uh, at one point I learned this thing called the way of counsel um, drawn from from lots of different traditions it's just basically a group of people sitting around in a circle with a speaking object like a stone or a stick um, and it goes round and it's it's a non-linear way of, of finding out what the group wants to say to itself and the rules are the rules of counsel Speak from the heart, listen from the heart, be spontaneous and be lean of expression. So when you're speaking, it's to speak from the heart and spontaneously what you find there. And when you're not speaking, it's to listen, not think, what am I going to say next? But what is this person really saying? And to try and say it as briefly and, and with a, as much elegance as you can. Which is what poetry is, really. It's, it's trying to be lean of expression and elegant. And my experience is that, yes, in the heart there is desperation and misery and anxiety, but there's always something underneath it. There's a, there's a reality underneath those things. There's a, there's a you underneath those things that has a secret voice that wants to speak to you, that wants to communicate with you. And that brings me on to another of the place poems that I wrote about Sheffield, and it's called Birdsong on Long Line. And again, this has music. Birdsong on long line a straight trudge uphill framed by a rainbow mirrored in petrol spilt on the black road the aperture in the sky a summons to pay heed to this mile of evening then there is the long swash of gleaming cars the undertone trundle of tarmac tires the human sign demarcating the start and a request for motorised slowness. A welcome yearning 
for careful drivers that seems to go utterly unheeded as I shrink into the moss-bound verge, a pleb to the passing of a royal. There is a Roman straightness to this road, a monosyllabic duality dissecting the fields bracketed by hedgerows and the generous robustness of trees. In the pause between Porsches and white vans, their parenthesis audibly bounding the green silence, I am able to hear a bird take up its garrulous singing. Now my attention has been sensitised like skin after weeks in a plaster cast. I am defenceless against the utter hopefulness of the feather-borne chant. I want to interrogate the singer's song as my body bends low to the constant incline and a bead of sweat snuggles down the stoop line of my spine like a mouse. My questions are caustic, corrosive. I want to scald this long line, stooping into an answer, into yielding meaning to this walk, to prize out an explanation. Instead, I just notice the sunlight captured in the silent panes of a house. Its goldenness, like an uncertain broadcast, dying in the arrival of dusk's cold. The long line is coming to a dark close. Sheep Hill Road teased the walk's long straightness and the tree framed by a sapphire backdrop to the farm where an allotment once flourished. The lack of beam poles in the overgrown patch witness to the absence of the old man I had once watched bending his own back to painstakingly dig in the new manure. A sleek throat sounds against the early dusk, a last verse to these long lines of walking, and my heart welcomes this reckless chorus, hopefulness beyond my walk's ending. That was me trying to teach my mouth to speak what was in my heart. That walk, <clears throat> there's something about walking that activates your unconscious, activates that much deeper part of you, the, the, the very bedrock of your heart, so that you can hear it, that you can experience it, a really deep level and for me that that last few stanzas about the the empty plot where the man had made his allotment and he wasn't there anymore and it was obvious he died and yet the garrulous bird song and wanting to interrogate it why are you so joyful when life can be so difficult and it was dusk and it was all about endings and it was my last walk of the twelve and I was I was so reminded of of mortality and and the end of things, and yet 
hope beyond my walks and hopefulness beyond my walks ending that's what i felt that that there is more there is so much more to us and so much more to this life and so much more beyond this life possibly who knows but i felt it at that moment and i just want to share with you a bit from from thomas merton and then a little bit of from my friend david white this is called The Work of the Cell by Thomas Merton. He says, Coming home through Shakertown, Harrodsburg, Perryville and Lebanon. These are the, the litany of the names of the places that where he lives. Beautiful June countryside, deep grass and hay, flowering weeds, tall cumulus clouds, corner foot high, beautifully green tobacco struggling to begin, the old road between Perryville and, Perryville and Lebanon. Winding between small farms and old barns with wooded knobs nearby is one I like. I really like the way he notices everything. Because he lives such a solitary life, because he lives in the, the what, what David White calls, this is the temple of my adult aloneness, and I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. There is no house, there is no house like the house of belonging. There is no house like the house of belonging. Thomas Merton's in the house of belonging. The great joy, he goes on to say, of the solitary life is not found simply in quiet, in the beauty and peace of nature, song of birds, etc., nor in the peace of one's own heart, but in the awakening and attuning of the heart to the voice of God. And for God, read the soul, your unconscious, the bedrock place in your heart, may be God for you, but it, it's it's the higher power of, of AA. It's it's that sense that there is something more, something beyond me that's in me. To the voice of God, to the inexplicable, quite definite, inner certitude of one's call to obey God, to hear God, to worship God, here, now, today, in silence and alone. And this is the whole reason for one's existence and makes one's existence fruitful, and gives fruitfulness to all one's other good acts, and is the ransom and purification of one's heart that's been dead in sin. Now, I wouldn't read that in that sort of Catholic, oh, I'm a sinner way. I would say, when you're so caught up in your own pain, or your own anxiety, and, and of course there's feels like there's no escape to that at times. I'm not saying it's a sin, but I you know, or we're caught up in things that are not serving us, not helping us. We're, we're, we're wound, ground down by it. Somehow the ransom and purification of the heart is to listen to that deeper inner voice. It's not simply a question of existing alone, he says, but of doing with joy and understanding the work of the cell which is done in silence and not according to one's own choice and the pressure of necessity but in obedience to god to that inner voice the voice of god is not heard at every moment and part of the work of the cell is attention so that may, one may not miss any sound of that voice when we see how little we listen and how stubborn and gross our hearts are we realize how important the work is and how badly prepared we are to do it we are very badly prepared at the moment in in the world that we live in of, of instant media of twitter and instagram and facebook and i do it just as much as everyone else doom scrolling 
worrying, you know, what's the next piece of bad news, and not going into that inner sanctuary, this temple of my adult aloneness that I belong to as I belong to my life. Earlier in the poem, David says, this is the bright home in which I live. This is where I ask my friends to come. This is where I want to love all the things it has taken me so long to learn to love. It has taken me so long to learn to love. There are so many things it's taken us so long to learn to love. It's taken me 60 years to learn to love Sheffield in the way that I do now. To learn to love the Rivlin Valley where I live. Just to learn to love so many things. The sound of the rain that's on the windows now. Uh, the feel of the dog's fur when he's wet. Um, the look in the dog's eyes. The lovely thing of walking with my wife. Uh, and, and just talking and laughing. So many things in the house of belonging, whatever house of belonging we live in, that it's, it, it's such a work to learn how to love them and to let that secret voice of the heart speak. And so on this in this last podcast, to sit on that cusp between the inner and outer worlds is to find the work of the cell. And the work of the cell is to be quiet, to be to have reverie. I really love that word, reverie. I've, I've said it before, in, even in these podcasts. That moment when you, as a child, used to just stare out of the window and watch the world go by. And we do it so little now. And to write poetry, to be creative, needs reverie. Human beings need reverie. We need those gentle beautiful spaces to just be at peace or or just to see what comes up you might not be at peace it doesn't really matter actually just if if you go into a moment of reverie you'll find what's there in the heart and then poetry is learning to speak it so i invite you to do a meditation of your own on the place where you find yourself wherever that is at the moment, no matter how miserable or difficult, to to think and to, to meditate on, this is my house of belonging. This is the temple of my adult aloneness, and I belong to it. How do I learn to love it? What is there to love? What's the secret voice of my heart telling me about this place? And then just try and record it in some way. Draw it, write it, speak it, sing it, make music about it. Do something creative. You know, make a sculpture with some stones. You know, make a, an arrangement of flowers, anything. Do something that creates an artefact that... that embodies that meditation that you make on the place where you are right now, the place that you live. And something beautiful, maybe something disturbing, maybe both. And 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 then spend time with 
I, I, one of the things I really like about writing poetry is you, you get an initial idea and then you work on it and you work with it. And you try and find a way of expressing what you're feeling with as much clarity and artfulness as you can. And then you keep coming back to it and you keep coming back to it. Make this a thing that goes on for at least a month of creating it, coming back to it, editing it, doing things with it if it's not words that 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 hone it that are that constant work of of allowing the heart to speak through the voice to speak through your hands to speak through your creativity this is my uh quite long you know me meditation on but, but but give me a break. I mean, this has been like four and a half, four and a half, five years of 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 traipsing and wandering and doing stuff in Sheffield. So, so this is a real distillation, and I've worked and worked on this. I think it's finished. It's called Afterward to a Traipsing. Twelve walks and much traipsing in between. An eighty-third bus route, the round walk, walks into town to Cuthbert's food bank. Rivlin walks daily, walks in other valleys or up into the peaks. These walks are part of me now, in my steps, in my eyes, in my ears and out through my voice. I am conduit to a city's animating principle, its genius loci, its flesh, blood and bone, its rare and racy living. I carry in my innards, in my giblets, a feeling for Sheffield as a city, as a gathered multitude, um, as a multiplicity of villages, as a conglomerate of tribes, as a northern culture, as a way of being. We are the common people. We are the dog lying in South Yorkshire's corner, the mardy bums, the burning bright, like an arc furnace at night. Don't be above yourselves. We sing carols in pubs, not churches. We stem from the primitive chapels, Wesley preaching Paradise Square, a cobbled congregation. We don't trust a God so grand as to live under splendid gilded ceilings or in privileged pews. Our souls are at home on edges, not in centres, certain of nothing save our bedraggled resilience. We go an extra mile if you look us in the eye and not down your nose. We are testy about change until it stands proud and true from the dross. I live here, I've lived here, I've been artful here, seen Joe Scarborough's brushstrokes down past the White Lion, listened to Helen Mort climb Stanage Edge and Brave Division Street, kissed the wife with Pete McKee and caught the dog with hobnobs in its gob down by Neep's End. I've stood at the sky's edge with my camera and noticed the echo of the pigeon loft square corrugation in the Blades Red Stadium. I've heard Richard Hawley sing to me about this precipice at the Crucible's round stage and seen Park Hill come to kitchen sinking life, Joseph and Mary, always no room, and Jason and Claire Middleton, she never married him, but we carry them, carry them all, like a swollen river of love. Laura Page has walked me around the streets, camera slung, capturing Sheffield with f-stops and the right shutter speeds for a city caught in the headlights of forces it is yet to grasp. But we're doing all right. We're artists of the ordinary, artisans of the everyday, grinders of the good from the shitty, turners of our pain into a grin and our crucible is still hot. 
On your steep and sloping streets I've met you, but one picture I took arrests my heart's eyes. Six young women on a day out with handbags and mobiles who asked me to take their photo. Three black, two brown, one white, the city at their back and laughing, laughing for the joy of being here in this Sheffield moment. Park Hill flats facing them, plushness is creeping like a sunrise across their grim past. But I want to know, who will build the city for these women? Who will give them a future? Like the one I had when Sheffield was on the move and these flats were built for the slum cleared and those who could stand at the sky's edge and see a new dawn. I've heard their voices and held the fierce gaze of capability, of imagination, of hard graft. These walks are a pilgrimage of grace to a future built by them and not the myopic deal-makers who see only the inside of their wallets, the pounds in their accounts or the next star scoop. These are not clichés before you have a go. I've met them, though they don't see it in themselves at their charity balls and the do's at the cutler's halls. This is a walk of faith through the general cemetery where I saw a teddy bear next to a fresh plot. There are people in Sheffield who can make a cradle to carry us to the grave. This is their song, a hymn to this city where unpretentious radicals and unassuming revolutionaries can flourish as someone down your street or in the pub, just another gleaming face among the common people. That's what happens when you sit on that cusp between the inner and the outer world and find those synchronicities. It becomes an inner secret voice talking to you, showing you your own house of belonging, your own place of belonging, granting you that sense of place, granting you those moments where you hear what that place is all about, which tells you what you're all about. If if it's a place where you feel displaced, that's telling you what you're about, that you're displaced and make a home in that displacement. Or if you feel deeply rooted, make a home in those roots. But really listen to that inner voice talking to you. I just want to read as a final postscript on this series, just a couple of paragraphs from Jung's confrontation with the unconscious. He says, I therefore felt I was confronted with the choice of either continuing my academic career, whose road lay smooth before me, or following the laws of my inner personality, of a higher reason, and forging ahead with this curious task of mine, this experiment in confrontation with the unconscious. But until it was completed, I could not appear before the public. Consciously, deliberately then, I abandoned my academic career, for I felt something great was happening to me, and I put my trust in the thing which I felt to be more important sub specie eternitatis, from the perspective of the eternal. I knew it would fill my life, and for the sake of that goal, I was ready to take any kind of risk. Any kind of risk. I think that and, and it, you only have to look at Jung's writings in his career to see that the risk was worth taking. He's the cartographer, the map maker of all of the things that I've been talking about. He, and he was prepared to give up so much in order to access that world. Um, so my encouragement 
is to make your meditation on the world that you inhabit, your place, your place in the world and the world's place in you at this time, at this moment, and just create some kind of artifact that speaks to you about that. And I, I, I promise that that will be rich and that that will, it will do things for you that <laughs> other kinds of beers cannot reach, that, that other kinds of, of, of work won't reach, doesn't reach. This kind of work is so important in the world that we live in so that we can be rooted on that cusp between the inner and outer worlds and be comfortable in both or if not comfortable adept at negotiating both adept at, at the interleaving of those two worlds which make us so much richer I hope that this little series has made you feel a little bit richer and I look forward to speaking again soon on the Anxious Poets podcast. Go well and wherever you get your podcast from, I'd really appreciate it if you like what you hear just to give a, a few stars or a little review. Um, not because that, I mean, it is nice. I do like it if people like it, but also if it's been helpful, it might be helpful to someone else. And, and it's a way of getting it more noticed and heard. Um, whatever. If you want to. Thanks very much. Go well. See you again. Bye. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Oh, a quick PS. I'm doing a gig in Sheffield on the 14th of December at Cafe Number 9. I'll put the details in the blurb for this podcast um, with Andy, who's written the music that you've heard on this uh, episode. And if you live in Sheffield, it'll be a really nice night, I think. Really um, evocative and fun. So if you can come, love to see you.